Also, all right, with all of that uh, mentioned, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, please. If you have a Bible with you, Matthew chapter 26, there are Bibles in the back, and we will show these verses on the screen to my right as well. Matthew 26, our series we're continuing is entitled Journey to Easter. And the purpose of this series is really summed up nicely by Dr. J.I. Packer, who said, we, we, never, we never move on from the gospel. We never move on from the good news of Jesus Christ. We only move on in the gospel. We move, only move on in, in understanding and appreciating and applying and being amazed by this good news. And that's what we want to have happen in all of our hearts in this series leading up to Easter. So let's pause and let's pray before we open God's Word or look at God's Word together. Spirit of God, we do. We ask you for help. I pray you'd help me. We want to move on as we sang deeper into the glories of Calvary. There are, there are glories for us to see this morning in your word. And so, Spirit of God, would you open our eyes further to behold the glories of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That no one would leave here unaffected or unchanged. By the glories we're about to behold. Grant this to us, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, friends, today we, we survey holy ground. Today we move on in the gospel by traveling to a garden called Gethsemane. Let's set the scene first, beginning in verse 30 of Matthew 26. And when they, Jesus and the disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus and the disciples have finished their Passover feasts. They, they sing a few psalms, as was the custom. They travel to Mount of Olives, this area nearby, when Jesus startles them with the news that they will all fall away because of him, he says. They will all fall away. Literally, they will be scandalized by him. He will be a scandal, an offense to them. Peter, of course, bold, lovable Peter, insists emphatically, this will never be the case. If he has to die with Jesus, he will never deny Jesus. And all the disciples concur. And next week we will see what happens to Peter's bold proclamation. 
for now, let us see what happens next in this passage. Verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So they travel to a garden, it seems perhaps in some kind of orchard, for the name of this place means Olive Press. We know it as Gethsemane. The disciples, as you see, cannot keep themselves awake. They're so exhausted. They're fried. Judas, one of, the betrayal, one of the 12 disciples, is off betraying Jesus. An armed mob is now on its way to arrest Jesus. This is the end of his life. The end of his human ministry, uh, earthly ministry at least. And against this bleak backdrop of, of human weakness and grieving betrayal, we find this lonely figure praying more earnestly and more intensely than anyone has ever prayed. I think I could say that confidently. Friends, this is holy ground. This is a unique and mysterious interaction between God the Father and God the Son. And out of it, out of this unique interaction, I want to draw with you two elements that are absolutely crucial for every person here. Two, two realities upon, upon which your eternal destiny depends. Two realities. Here's the first one I want to see with you. The agony of the Son's suffering. 
the agony of God the Son's suffering here. Jesus says in verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. There, there is no minimizing the, the agony he is experiencing. It is a sorrow so deep it feels life-threatening to Jesus, a kind of life-threatening sorrow. It's about to overwhelm him. A tsunami of sorrow is overtaking him. Now, some have said that we go through our own Gethsemanes, and, and friends, we do not, not like this. But I want to say, if you, if you are in sorrow right now in your life, if you are experiencing sorrows, and I know some of you are, just connect right away here that Jesus can relate to you. He is called the man of sorrows for good reason. If you're experiencing sorrow in your life, Jesus can relate to you and can help you as your great high priest. He knows what that's like. The agony for him is real, the sorrow extreme, but why? Why is the holy Son of God sorrowful even to death. Don't, don't you want to ask why? It's not because of the physical suffering he knows is about to come. It's not because of that. Jesus has forecast his physical sufferings numerous times to his disciples. He knows that's coming. And it would be horrific indeed, but his physical sufferings were no surprise to Jesus. It is clearly because of this cup he references in verse 39, is it not? My Father, if it be possible, if in the realm of possibility we could accomplish our plan somehow, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And again he prays, verse 42, he went away and prayed, and we read, My Father, if this, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it. So we must ask, friends, what is this cup making Jesus sorrowful even to death? What is this cup that is overwhelming the soul of the Savior with sorrow? Well, he's drawing, as you may know, he's drawing on an Old Testament metaphor. Passages like Isaiah 51 where we read, wake yourself, wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup, notice, the cup of His wrath. Or Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 25, where we read, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup, this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So the cup is a metaphor representing divine wrath, divine anger against sin. Now some have said the idea that God has wrath, the idea of a wrathful God is a, is a primitive idea. It sounds more like Zeus than the God of the Bible. A wrathful God is beneath the God of the Bible, they say. But friends, God's wrath does not bring him low. It exalts him. 
it shows how great, how high, and how holy He really is. You, you want God to be wrathful toward what is wrong. Friends, a good God is wrathful toward evil. And so, as, God, as Robert Leatham writes, God's wrath is His, his settled personal antagonism to sin. It's a good definition. His settled personal antagonism to sin. Or as, or as John Murray has put it, wrath is God's holy revulsion against sin. A settled personal antagonism, a, a holy revulsion. And we know, actually, don't we? We know something of an echo of this in our own lives. We're made in the image of God. We're made by God and made like God. So we can feel sometimes an echo of this holy revulsion. Can we not? We should feel holy anger against things like child abuse. A holy revulsion to things like sexual assault or racism or systematic oppression of different ethnicities. We should feel holy revulsion against forms of evil, but, but our wrath is often tainted by sin. My anger is usually not of that variety, <laughs> maybe once in a while. My anger is typically motivated by selfishness and distorted by arrogance. And God's wrath is not like that. God does not get irritated at inconveniences like I do. God does not fly off the handle or lose his temper, whatever euphemism you want to use. God's wrath is his good and right response to all that is evil and wrong. The problem is we're part of what is evil and wrong in the world. Sometimes we say, well, we all make mistakes. <laughs> to err is human. What's the big deal? It's a very big deal. Sin, as the Bible calls it, is a very big deal. It is, as R.C. Sproul put it many times, it is, it is cosmic treason. It is shaking our fists at God. It is, our, it is thumbing our noses at our good and loving Creator. So for God to be true to Himself, true to His holiness and righteousness and justice, for God to be God, He must respond to my sin and your sin with personal, settled antagonism. Wrath. Divine judgment, and anger. That's what's in this cup. That's why Jesus is feeling sorrowful to the point of death. Because a hurricane of divine justice against my sin and your sin is in this cup. Jesus is looking into this cup. He's peering into this metaphorical cup and he's seeing what he's going to experience on the cross as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, with this cup, God the Father would think of all of our sin as belonging to his Son. The Father would, as it were, credit 
the guilt of our sin to his own beloved son. So, so, so every fiber of Jesus' being is, is recoiling from what he's going to be like in the Father's eyes. And he, he falls on his face in agony, in, in emotional torment, praying, pleading, Father, there's always been perfect harmony between us. Never a time when there was not perfect love between us. And now I look to you and all I see is this cup of foaming justice. The wine of your wrath. I've heard it thought of as, as God's, God's anti-blessing. You might know the passage in Numbers chapter 6. The sort of famous blessing of the priest Aaron goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. A good way to think about what Jesus is seeing in this cup and what he will experience on the cross, a good way to think of that is as the opposite of that blessing. Turn it all around. To hear the curse of sin he's going to endure. The Lord damn you and reject you. The Lord make his face to turn away from you and curse you. The Lord shun you and pour out his wrath upon you. And God the Son will drink that cup to the very bottom until every single ounce is drained for all of his people. I told you this was holy ground. This is the center of what we call the gospel, the good news. This is the core. This is the center. What Jesus is looking into and beholding in this cup. The New Testament uses many, a number at least, of, of images to talk about the work of Christ, like a ransom being paid, uh, redemption from slavery, reconciliation between two parties, or, or the conquering of spiritual foes, and all those are true, but, but the center of all of them is, is right here, what we're seeing. God the Son taking our place as a substitute to bear the judgment of God against our sin. That's, friends, what we must never move on from as a church. Never. But only move on in. So let me ask you, what do you see here as you gaze at this lonely figure praying in agony? What do you see here? More specifically, can, can you locate yourself in this scene? Can you find yourself in this picture? You might say, Tab, I'm not in this scene. It's Jesus alone and the sleepy disciples in this scene. I'm not here. No, we are here. It's the guilt of our sins and what our sins deserve. In that cup. Friend, it was, it was for my 
sin, that he was in agony. And it was for yours, if you believe. The great reformer Martin Luther once put this well. He said, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. We all walk around all the time, every believer in Jesus. We all walk around with with the nails that held Jesus to the cross jingling in our pockets. He was there for our sins. Do, Do you hear those nails? Can you hear them jingling? It's vital you do. It's absolutely vital. Because then you will understand this agony and you'll behold the glory of what's taking place. So secondly, let's see the glory. Secondly, friends, behold with me the glory, the glory of the Son's obedience. The glory of God the Son obeying God the Father here. Jesus is sorrowful even to death, praying that if possible, this cup, this cup of divine wrath might be removed from him. But then, but then in words that mean everything for you and me, he says in verse 39, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Everything's on the line for you and me there. Nevertheless, not as I will, but Father, as you will. Same in verse 42. Father, your will be done. Same in verse 44. He prays the same word. So three times, God the Son pleads, Father, please, if possible, remove the cup. And three times, the Son submits to the Father and resolves to drink that bitter cup. Now, it's important we don't misunderstand what's going on. Because right now we're vulnerable to some misunderstanding. So let me, let me cr- clarify a possible misunderstanding. It's not that only the father is angry with sin and, and the son is, is a much nicer guy and he's trying to placate the father and calm him down. It's not like that. No, father, son, and Holy Spirit are a unity together one God and three persons, they all share the same settled personal antagonism toward evil. They all have a holy revulsion toward sin. So catch this, both Father and Son are wrathful toward sin. Think about, think about Mark chapter 3, where the religious leaders are much more upset that Jesus has healed on the, Sab- yeah, healed on the Sabbath than they're excited that a guy has been healed. They are all upset that the Sabbath in their minds has been broken. What does Jesus do? It says in the passage, he looked at them in anger. At the hardness of their hearts, he had holy revulsion. Or, maybe your mind goes to John chapter 2, where the Son in his wrath clears the temple. The currency exchangers have taken over the court of the Gentiles in the temple. The only place where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could could worship God now look like a county fair. So with, with holy fire in his eyes and holy revulsion in his heart, he fashions a whip. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, fashions a whip, flips over the tables, and drives out the money changers. 
the Son has wrath towards sin. And maybe most starkly in Revelation chapter 6, you see his wrath when it is pictured for us God the Son returning in splendor to judge all humanity. And those unreconciled to him plead for the mountains to fall on them, saying, quote, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus. So don't misunderstand what's happening in Gethsemane. God the Father and God the Son are wrathful towards sin. This is not the Father is angry and the Son is trying to calm him down. But this is the glory of God the Son's obedience to the Father. It's the glory, the glory of the Son's obedience, securing salvation for all who believe. It's been said, it's been said the Bible is a story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. I think you'd certainly add the, the temple garden at the end of the Bible, but let's go with it. Two gardens, Eden, Gethsemane. In the first garden, the first man, Adam, rebels, plunges the race into sin and ruin. In the second garden, the second Adam, Jesus, obeys. In the first garden, the first Adam says, not your will, my will be done. And plunges us all into destruction. In the second garden, the second Adam says, not my will, Father, yours be done. And purchases our salvation. As the writer to the book of Hebrews, I think, reflects on this scene, provides some commentary for Gethsemane. Rather uniquely, Hebrews chapter 5. It's a bit of a difficult passage, but it says in Hebrews 5, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Notice that. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, most commentators think that's especially a reference to Gethsemane. Not exclusively, not entirely. It's certainly referencing something of Jesus' entire earthly ministry, but perhaps especially Gethsemane, these prayers, these supplications, these loud cries, these tears. With the result being verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect by that obedience as the God-man. Notice, he became the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him. Here's the glory of the son's obedience. He is now. He's now the headwaters. He's now this constantly flowing fountain of salvation. To all who obey God by believing. And if you're here friends and you've yet to believe in Jesus. Please hear God's loving invitation to you. And loving command to you that you must obey. He's commanding you to believe on his son. It's not optional. He will hold you accountable if you refuse to repent and believe. He is with love and mercy holding out his hands to you, but commanding you, believe. Believe this good news. Turn from going your own way. Trust in the finished work of my son. 
Obey him by faith and know him as the source of your eternal salvation. The son's obedience here is glorious for it secures salvation. But it's glorious as well because the son's obedience here purchases our favor. Purchases God's favor for us. We need a, we need a theological word to get this. And the word is, is propitiation. Propitiation just means to turn aside wrath and bestow favor. Turn aside wrath and bestow favor. Propitiation is, is, is here, God's wrath being propitiated by God the Son, God in the flesh, that God himself might be propitious or favorably disposed to you. Did you catch that? Wrath removed so that God might relate to you with his favor. If you stand before a judge in San Diego County, guilty, condemned, guilty as charged, the only way that judge can rightfully bestow favor on you is when your debt to society is paid, right? That's justice. That debt has to be paid before some favor can be bestowed. That's what the cross of Christ is for you. It is judgment received so that favor can be yours right now. It's the cup of wrath being emptied so that the dark clouds of judgment can be wiped away and you can live in the the sunshine of God's favor in Christ every day. Are you living in that sunshine? Don't we tend to live as if God had us on some kind of spiritual probation? Don't we live oftentimes as if God were our probation officer? Yes, the judge has been satisfied, but now he is my probation officer and he is always watching to see if my performance merits his favor. Am I the only one that thinks this way? So, we view God's favor toward us kind of like a stock market graph. It's up, it's down. It's up, a new high. Whoa, a new low. Whoa, we had a correction. Whoa, way down. No, got some favor today. Hopefully the trend is upwards, but it's up and down. It's erratic. I don't know if God is approving or not. That is not how he wants you to live if you are in Christ. If the wrath of God has been propitiated He is propitious toward you in His Son. The judge judge has been satisfied and He is now a Father full of favor toward you every day. Because Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. Does He discipline us for our good? Oh yes, as a good father does his children. Oh, yes, but out of love, out of favor. He's, he's, not going to, he's not going to reject you. He's not going to abandon you. Jesus, if Jesus heard the curse for you of the Lord damn you and reject you, you get to hear God's blessing of The Lord make his face shine upon you 
and give you peace. He wants you to live in the good of his favor because of the son's obedience. And one more, one more way. See the glory of the son's obedience in, in securing a salvation, in, in purchasing favor. But you see the glory here, don't you? You see the glory of this obedience and how it reveals God's love to us. Friends, this is love on display. Gethsemane is about divine love making provision for divine wrath. It is the passage Joshua referenced earlier as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, in this is love. You want to find love? You want to see love? John says, here it is. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. This is love. And listen, it's the love of both Father and Son. Think about Think for a minute with, you, with me how, how costly of a love this is for the Father toward you and me. Put yourself kind of, if you can, mentally in the Father's shoes. As an analogy, think about the scene in Genesis 22 when Abraham's faith is tested. He's called to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac, the son of God's promise, Isaac. He's told to travel to this mountain and Abraham's heart, you know, is just breaking. It's, it's heart-wrenching. Our hearts are breaking with Abraham's heart as they walk up that mountain. And here is Jesus, actually very close to the same place. And how must God the Father's heart not be breaking over his own precious son, don't you think? His beloved son's agony and coming sacrifice. And yet John writes, in this is love, he, he sent that son for you. Or here's another analogy. Think about, think about the guy named Absalom. He was King David's son. And he rebelled against King David, long story, won't get into all that. Leads a rebellion, sort of leads a coup against his own dad. That's, that's pretty grieving, don't you think? How would you like that? not so happy. Ends up, his hair gets caught, you know, and he gets killed. And, and David, David's response is not, I'm so glad that rebellious guy got it, finally. David grieves as a father. And we get that, don't we? We get that, that he's not wearing his king hat at that moment. He's got his dad hat on. He's going, my son, my son. We get that. We understand the grief. We understand the pain. What about here? We're talking about God's perfect son. No sin in him. Never an ounce of rebellion. The father has only perfect delight in this son. Think about how the father must have longed to answer these prayers in Gethsemane. Wasn't the father longing to say, oh yes, son, it is possible, and let's find a different way. Let's take this cup off the table. 
Wasn't the Father's heart longing to do that? But there was no other way to rescue us. And so the Father does not answer those prayers. The Father receives the Son's obedience in love for you and me. Think about the Father's love here. Think about, think about the love of the Son for you in this obedience as well. A lot we could say here. But certainly, let's say this much, Jesus is revolted by what he's going to become in the Father's eyes. He spent eternity past enjoying perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, perfect delight, the perfect relationship between Father and Son for forever, okay? He is precious to the Father. He is, he is the most valued person in the universe to the Father. And He's going to become all that He and the Father hate. He will be a child abuser in the Father's eyes. He will be a rapist in the Father's eyes. He will be a thief, a liar, an adulterer in the Father's eyes. He will be the doer of every atrocity imaginable. And he will be a disrespectful teenager, an impatient mother, a harsh father, a lustful man, an envious woman in the father's eyes. He will bear every proud, arrogant, rude thought of his people. He will bear every unkind word His people have spoken. And yet in His love for you, He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Friends, Gethsemane, Gethsemane is like, it's like a gold-plated guarantee. It's like a rock-solid promise that you cannot be more loved than you are right now if you are in Christ. Think about that. You, you cannot get more loved than you are right now if you are in Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take God's. He said, in this is love. Not that you and I have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be our propitiation to be a wrath-bearing, favor-purchasing sacrifice. In this is love. So friends, behold the agony of God the Son and behold the glory of God the Son. Behold the Agony of the suffering he's about to embrace and behold the glory of his obedience to purchase salvation, to bestow favor, and to reveal God's great love for you and me. This is how we move on in this gospel. Let's pray as the music team comes. And those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can prepare to do so. Let's first pray and ask the Spirit of God for the gift of illumination.
that our hearts would be opened to understand more the glories of Calvary. Ask Him even now, in the silence of your own heart, to help you be in awe and wonder at your Savior. Father, how can we thank you that you did not Spare your only son. How can we but worship you, God the Son, for the glory of your obedience and sacrifice? How can we but not welcome, Holy Spirit, your application of this good news to our lives? We thank you. Would you help us now as we take the bread and the cup To remember, to be amazed by what you've done, to have fellowship with you, our risen Savior, by your Spirit, and to anticipate your return. Help us now, we ask you, in Jesus' name, amen.